Chapter 3 The birds woke me. That's when I first understood where I might be, and the feeling of disorientation swelled to the steady fear I've endured ever since. Before that, there was darkness, matched only by silence, and even this doesn't tell the truth of what it was like. In mathematics, the concept of zero is the only representation I can think of to express where I'd been. Nothingness. And now this world was emerging with its chorus of birds, more like heckling, and the smell of ammonia, presumably because a deer or something had come by in the night to urinate on the boulder I was sleeping under. From my dugout, I could detect faint shoots of light through the forest canopy. The birds were busy chirping it in, first a few peeps, then some twittering replies, followed by the deeper, rounded call of a cuckoo, then the gathering surge of all the others joining in until their songs echoed up and down the mountainside. I stayed where I was. I could see through one eye. The other eye was hidden in the crook of my arm. Despite this, I could see that my body lay under a rocky overhang. Locked into place, my limbs were stiff and tingling with constriction. My knees were packed into my chest. With my open eye, I could peer some fifty meters down the slope into a murky line of trees. Something or someone rustled a bush down there, but I didn't dare call out. I didn't dare move, even though the discomfort of my position was giving me shock pains in my shins and buttocks. I forced myself to shut my eye, to close it down and return to wherever I had come from. But the sounds and pressures of that place wouldn't fade, and I felt the first jabs of fright beginning to grind on me. I told myself, think positive. With my eyes closed, I listed any advantages that came to mind. There were no signs of immediate danger. That was the chief advantage. That alone would give me time to think things through and calm myself in the process. The only other thing I could think of that might have counted in my favor was that I was rested and not too cold. All things considered, I'd chosen a reasonable location to wake up in, curled into a burrow under a large granite boulder. I began to stretch my arms and legs, gritting against the pains up my back, quietly pushing myself out from where I was. There were no broken bones or wounds that I could immediately detect, and I felt an improvement once I got the blood circulating. I yawned, shaking my legs, looking around. The fact that it wasn't dusk or the middle of the night, I realized, was another huge plus in all of this. It meant I had the daylight hours ahead of me, rather than the dark closing in. I took stock. I was in a forest, somewhere up the side of a mountain. A strange new pain developed in my right arm. I rubbed it, holding in a panic that was erupting deep within me. I could feel the panic, yet I was also aware and whole and perhaps even slightly exhilarated. I knew it was insane, 
almost impossible that I should be wearing a smart suit and tie, a clean pressed shirt, and soft black leather shoes. In the back of my mind, I'd identified this as being one of the many disadvantages stacked against me, and wasn't yet mentally ready to dwell on it without breaking down. I brushed as much of the scud and pine needles off me as I could. At least the color of my suit blended in, I thought. It was made of a dark brown material, nicely cut, with sharp pleats in the trousers. There was a trail on the jacket sleeve of clear, gucky stuff. I tried rubbing it off, but only succeeded in smearing it into the fabric. My hands were big. I had nice wide palms and broad, well-manicured fingers. Oddly enough, examining them made me feel more confident. I estimated that I was nearly two meters tall, fit and heavy-boned. Though still unsteady on my feet, I knew I had to walk a great distance and wished I'd woken up wearing a sturdy pair of hiking boots and more suitable clothing. I patted my trousers and jacket pockets. They all felt empty. No compass, no Swiss army knife, nor anything else remotely practical. Only a pair of spare buttons for the jacket, still in their plastic bag. I kept the buttons, putting them back in my pocket. I could have laughed and thrown them to the ground, but that would have been a gesture of despair, and there was no room for perversity in this situation. I realized that much. I had to act with clarity. I would love to have shouted for help, but didn't think it wise to draw attention to myself without knowing more. I probably should have proceeded downhill, but there were good reasons not to. Whatever it was that had been moving down there was still spooking me. It gave me goose pimples, thinking there might be someone waiting, watching, not calling up to me. I realized that the nearest village would have to be in the valley, but I had no way of knowing how far this was, or on which downward path, or who I might come across there. I felt I had an equally good chance going up the mountain, hoping to outclimb the treetops in order to get a bearing on where I was exactly. I began my ascent through the maze of trees, stumbling on exposed roots and ruts in the ground. Every so often I had to look back to check I could still see the boulder I'd been sleeping under. It was the only point of reference I had, and strange as it may seem, I was sorry to be losing sight of it. Other advantages occurred to me as I negotiated my way over fallen pines and around the spiky tips of so many branches. It was a good season to be out walking in the woods. I decided it must be the middle of spring. The ground was firm, not too muddy, and the greens of the forest were vibrant, almost glaring. I couldn't help linking this natural intensity with a sense of danger and the hazards of walking there. It would have been a concern had I been elderly or less able. In fact, I found I had plenty of stamina. I wasn't in any way tired or beaten. The only thing that bothered me those first few hours, and I tried to keep it at bay, was the heat. There was already a sense of how hot it was about to get. The early part of the day was tolerable. I found ways of appreciating my surroundings, always making a conscious effort to strengthen my outlook. 
The sun had risen behind me and was casting a kind of mesmeric, refracted light in all directions. The straight, narrow shafts picked out particles of dust drifting overhead. There was a putrid, sweet smell, both from the pine sap and the wood and plants rotting on the forest floor. As the going became more difficult, every so often I would run into a cool current of air, left over from the night, and would linger in it until it went away. I knew the more advantages I could list, the better I would feel about my predicament. And for most of the morning I was able to stave off pangs of hunger and thirst, and even the tremulous feelings pent up in me. I found a meadow rich with dandelions and foxgloves, and for the first time saw the sky uncluttered by trees, intensely blue with the trace of a quarter moon running through it. For a while I watched a buzzard hovering on a thermal and had to snap myself out of it. There was no path across the meadow that I could see. As I didn't want to get my fine shoes sodden with dew, I skirted the edge, still with the objective of heading up the mountain. But I couldn't help dwelling on this one open space, bordered by so many proud pines. I longed to stay and felt my spirits drop as I re-entered the gloom. I had to make an effort to feel good about it. The truth was, although it was cooler under the trees, the beauty of the forest held little appeal for me. The heat became oppressive. That and the physical disabilities I was discovering I had on the way. It was a combination of the discomfort in my legs, and especially my right arm, which was very painful, and the breathlessness and sweat pouring down my back and around my forehead due to the ever-rising temperature. Both sleeves of my jacket were dappled and damp. I'd wiped my face so many times in them. Every fly, mosquito, and gnat I passed found me delectable. They swarmed and followed me in a thick, buzzing cloud. I wasn't able to use my right arm to shoo them away. It was too incapacitated for violent swings. I had to make do with flailing my left arm and shouting at them to pick on someone their own size. I have to admit, I lost control then. In desperation, I took off my jacket and wrapped it over my head. This had a pleasing but short-term effect. It blocked out the insects well enough, and the silk lining was cool to my skin at first, soaking up the sweat and lowering my temperature. But it was only for a while, and I couldn't see where I was going any more. I tripped frequently. I grazed my knee, blocking a fall with my bad arm. The arm throbbed all the more, and my trousers were past mending. Within a few hours of this, I'd come to a complete standstill, taking rapid breaths. My jacket still hung around my head, with just a slot for my eyes. I felt like a Bedouin, lost and far away from anything familiar, in no apparent danger, but trying to quell my fear and work out what to do next. Chapter 4 Anya Heller got back from school and ran upstairs to transform herself into a doom child. 
She spread her things around the floor as her mother called out, How did it go today? Anya didn't answer, or even say hello. One look at her bedroom, and she knew that her mother had been tidying and airing and purging again. She slammed the door with a curse, visualizing her mother on her knees, eyeballs twice their size as the house walls came tumbling down. That would teach her a lesson. It would serve her right, Anya whispered to the walls. Nobody touches my things, she whispered, and closed the windows and fastened the catches and pulled the curtains together urgently, as if exposure to daylight could blind the righteous. She snapped her reading light on so she could angle it towards a poster of a band called the Baby Killers over her pillow and collapsed on the bed to examine her phone content, hardly knowing any more why she felt so betrayed. Her mother was in the kitchen chopping garlic. There was part of a dead sheep bleeding all over the counter, and you knew she was going to have to refuse to eat later on. She was still at the dawn of her political orientation, causing her nevertheless to raise hell and resist any kind of established order. She jumped off the bed and stripped away the pleated green and white plaid skirt they made her wear at school. With her foot, she shoved the offending article under her desk where the blazer was already, then took off the jumper with its silly laurel crest and threw that into a corner of the room. The white shirt, the green and blue striped tie, the white socks, all went in roughly the same direction. For all Anya cared, all that stuff could rot for all time. She was down to her bra and knickers and intended to spend the rest of the afternoon dressing in black and highlighting her hair with red streaks, fixing a fake stud to her lower lip, and later confronting whoever had a problem with that. Teresa was preparing a shoulder of lamb to roast, making small incisions in the meat so she could push in sprigs of fresh rosemary from the garden, along with the garlic she'd chopped. She had the hi-fi on, streaming in a news broadcast to distract her from the difficulties she and Barry were having with their daughter. Annie wasn't just beginning to act cold and apart. Her teachers had been at pains to point out the slow but inexorable deterioration in her schoolwork. Barry didn't have the patience for it. His reactions had been harsh and unlike him. He was part of the problem in Teresa's thoughts. While she saw it as a girl's confusion, hormonal imbalance, the sort of thing that drops away naturally given time, Barry seemed to take it personally. He feared Anya might be on drugs, or even something more deeply rooted, a mental aberration of some kind, and had declared more than once that he thought their daughter should see a psychiatrist. If there was good reason to listen to the news, it was for the subtle relief it offered in setting out all of the disasters experienced by others. It was about refugees and asylum seekers, and how troublesome it was that they all wanted to find somewhere peaceful to live, and flashpoint terrorism with its disgraceful disregard for life, and more particularly, mounting tensions in Turkey, twice referred to by the presenter as a tinderbox. You should come to the Heller household, Teresa thought. Whenever she heard her children shouting upstairs, she turned the volume up as a signal to them that things could be far worse. Anya emerged from the dark spaces of her room in a pair of Doc Martin boots 
wearing them with the laces trailing. She had a tight black t-shirt on, cropped high to expose her belly, with the image of a skull breathing fire on the front, and black jeans with razor rips down them, showing parts of her left thigh where she'd drawn an upside-down cross during geography that day. The cross had sickle curves on all eight corners. She was good at art, and had done her best to get it to look like a tattoo. Later, in the toilets, she'd shown it to Becky Yapton, pretending it was real, saying how painful it was getting it done, making up the gorgeous hunk who did it for her, although it was apparent that Becky Yapton hadn't been taken in, stuck-up little bitch. Stomping to the bathroom door, Anya rattled the handle, knowing full well it was locked. Get out, she snapped. She spit the words through her teeth, working the handle up and down. Inside, her brother said, No way! You've been in there long enough. I don't care. You don't get out. I'm going into your bedroom. No, you're not. Get out, then. You can't make me. I'll go to your bedroom. Teresa slid the tray with the lamb on it into the oven. The potatoes and string beans were ready for boiling. It was just after six, and the food would be on the table by eight. Barry's brother and his wife were over for the week from Boston. They were expected any minute. The kids were at each other's throats again, and the news was turned up full blast. As Teresa set the table, she listened to those measured newscasters, ever grateful for the calm, rational take they always had on upheaval and catastrophe. Meanwhile, Anya pounded the bathroom door with the side of her fist and shouted, I said, get out! Use the other loo! No, Jamie, get out! Shut off! Seeing as the slug had decided to barricade himself, Anya felt she had no alternative but to enter his room and disturb as many of his things as she could lay her hands on. She marched back down the landing, making fearful thudding sounds with her Doc Martens. She opened the door that had a sign on it saying, No Girls Allowed. Teresa knew she had to stop her children in their tracks. She didn't want Barry coming home and exploding again, all because of something so raw-nerved about him these days. This problem was new and frightening. Barry was keeping it hidden from almost everyone. Only those who knew him intimately knew that it was happening. Teresa didn't understand why he should be so on edge, whether it was to do with his work or her or what, but she felt threatened by it and stomped like a child into the hall, her anger mounting with her on the stairs, knowing full well she would regret going up, half wondering why she was letting herself do it at all. A space shuttle narrowly missed her head. It was a medium-sized scale model, and it collided with the wall just behind her as she drew level with the landing. Jamie had barged out of the toilet with a mop. He was swinging it at Anya in the entrance to his room. Anya was throwing his toys at him, holding him off for the moment, but it would soon come to blows. As Teresa entered the fray, they were already shouting obscenities. She grabbed the mop and threw it down. What do you think you're doing? she yelled. For half a second, the kids gaped. Then, as their claims of innocence and indignation pealed like bells, one more shrill than the other, Teresa pressed her hands to her ears and felt herself slip some more. 
She hated herself for being so angry. She really wanted to hit one of them. It would most likely be Jamie, because Jamie was right by her and would be more forgiving than Anya afterwards. Besides that, Anya was dressed for battle again, looking as scary as possible. Even through her nerves, Teresa knew she would have to coax her daughter into something respectable before dinner, if only for Barry's sake. She heard herself screaming at Jamie. I don't care if she's in your room. She felt strangely free from the usual trap of being so mild-mannered. You do not go around attacking people with a mop. Anya said, Yeah. Jamie slapped his thighs hard with his hands and looked heavenwards, groaning. She's not just trespassing in my room, she's breaking everything. He turned and stumbled over the mop and jumped down the stairs, over the pieces of his space shuttle and a few World War II soldiers he'd hand-painted in happier times. Teresa shouted after him, but Jamie roared back, Fuck that, Mum! It was the worst thing he could think of saying before running out of the house and up the hill, towards the heath.